Welcome to Coin Flips and Controversies, an OrthoBullet's original series dedicated to exploring gray zone decisions in orthopedic surgery. This episode of Coin Flips and Controversies is sponsored by the Critical Concepts in Shoulder and Elbow Surgery course, taking place this November at the Venetian Resort in Las Vegas. At this time, we will hand it over to the webinar faculty. We hope you enjoy the webinar. One and thank you for listening to the content of our webinar tonight. I am really blessed to be moderating tonight a group of fantastic shoulder and elbow surgeons, Dr. Rob Gillespie, Dr. Eric Banner, and Dr. Vanessa Beysan. We are all going to be faculty at the 2023 edition of the Critical Concepts in Shoulder and Elbow Surgery course that will happen in Las Vegas at the Venetian November 2nd to 4th this year. And for those of you interested in learning more about shoulder and elbow, we have a fantastic program with one day of cadaver lab where we will practice lateral jet procedure and uh, we will practice also anatomic and reverse orthoplasty and reverse for fracture. And then a day and a half of more didactic content for fractures and sports injuries, rotator cuff pathology and orthoplasty again. So I hope that uh, you guys can come and also ortho bullets will kindly broadcast some of the morning uh, sessions uh, for people that cannot make it to Las Vegas in person this year. So tonight we're going to discuss a case of a periprosthetic fracture, which I think is going to be more and more commonly present in our practices just because there is more and more individuals that have an arthroplasty in place, like Dr. Wagner has published eloquently, and people as get older, they tend to fall. Uh, so I think as practicing orthopedic surgeons, we're going to see a rise in this particular uh, type of a problem. And the case tonight is that of a 70-year-old female patient that had a known history of classic, uncomplicated primary glenohumeral osteoarthritis, and she underwent an anatomic total shoulder uh, two years prior to presentation to our institution, and she actually was doing super well. No pain, good motion, super happy. Unfortunately, seven months after the arthroplasty, she fell and suffered, as you will see in the images, a fracture of the humeral shaft around the stem of the humeral component, and the fracture was treated non-operatively using a brace for several months. And then once it was confirmed that there was lack of healing radiographically, the patient was referred for further treatment. And when I saw her, she had a pain score of 5 over 10, 10 being the worst, with activity the pain escalated to 8 out of 10, and her overall SSB was 30%. In terms of comorbidities, uh, nothing major, uh, no use of tobacco products. She's a little bit um, overweight for her height with a BMI of 40, which may have an impact in tonight's pathology. And then in terms of her physical examination, she had a well-healed anterior skin incision that seems to correspond to just a standard deltoectoral approach. And of course, as expected, in a patient that has a non-united fracture, limited elevation, limited ascender rotation, no internal rotation further than the circular joint, and uh, no distal neurovascular abnormalities. So these are the x-rays at the time of her index fracture. So just as a reminder, this is seven months after her arthroplasty. So starting with uh, Rob, can you describe, uh, Rob, this x-ray and tell me what comes to your mind if you see this patient acutely in your office? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks again for having me, Joaquin. This is a great case. Um, so what we're looking at right here, Joaquin, is just, you know, for those who are on a pod, that it's, a, it's an AP and it's an oblique fracture that's extending just distal to the 
the tip of the implant. It's a um, diaphyseal fitting uh, humeral component for her anatomic shoulder replacement. It's a fairly long stem, so it's going down to that sort of isthmus of the diaphysis. It looks like there may be a little bit of a butterfly fragment here. Um, and so for a patient like this that comes into my office, Joaquin, I, you know, I think that, um, as you said, this patient, this is an initial presentation seven, eight months ago, but this is someone that, depending on their activity level and what they're doing, is someone I'm inclined initially oftentimes to treat without an operation. Um, I do think her body habitus does make that a little bit more difficult right where this fracture is. Um, uh, if you have a thin individual, I think the Sarmiento bracing works really, really well. I think if you're not as thin, it doesn't work as well and can tend to fall into varus and you have a lot of comminution, it can also have problems like that. But the, the reason I look at that, the only reason I would do something differently, Joaquin, is if I was looking at this x-ray and I saw that uh, the stem was loose or the fracture was extending to a way that I thought the stem would have a problem. And here you're saying that she had really well-functioning anatomic shoulder replacement before she fell. If I did anything with this, um, I... I, you know, I, I think that um, surgery would be not my first choice. Non-operative management would be my first choice. How I usually present to these patients, I warn them that there's a chance that it won't work. They need surgery in the future. But I like to start with these fractures with a well-fixed stem, uh, treating them without an operation. Yeah, I would agree with that. So, Bunny, what x-rays do you typically take in these patients? You know, in orthopedic trauma, we always are told to use orthogonal views. So are you a patient, a person that will get an axillary x-ray or a wide view um, or none? What do you think? Well, you know, typically if it's something more proximal, absolutely, I will try to still get sort of a Velpo view in these patients that might be hurting. So to get an orthogonal view and get like that true AP that you have. I think in the shaft area, it becomes a little bit more, you know, difficult and a little bit more nuanced toward kind of the AP in a typical straight lateral. And if you can get something like that, that I think is helpful. You know, I think that the difficulty is right. Further imaging, a lot of these, a lot of these ER docs order all these kind of CT scans and, and with this metal artifact there, it's very difficult. So I definitely think that the plain radiographs, if you can assist and try to position the patient in a comfortable way to get a better uh, x-ray you're better off yeah i think that's a great point i agree with you 100 percent. i think in an attempt to obtain an axillary x-ray what may happen is that you may show a fracture of this more displaced that it will be in the resting position so the surgeon that took care of this patient actually i think did the right thing which is to get orthogonal views but not an axillary x-ray and you can see how in theory like dr gillespie mentioned the alignment is pretty good there is comminution so i would also treat this fracture probably without surgery uh, at the uh, time of the index fracture. Eric, are there any classifications that you think are of value when we assess these fractures or you just go by how it looks in general? Like anything that you that you use in your clinic to say this is a type A, B, C, D, or one, two, three, or? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, so there are multiple classifications. Um, I, truthfully for me, and this, maybe this is a bit old school and going back to my roots with uh, hip and knee arthroplasty, I feel like um, we're, we're copying a lot of stuff in the shoulder. I mean, I, I feel like their Vancouver classification is very relevant to how, how we evaluate with the uh, SEM and there's been modifications obviously, but nonetheless, the, the idea of a well-fixed implant versus not, the idea of location of the fracture, um, some of the other subtleties is where there's ingrowth on the stem. As you can see, there's proximal ingrowth is not diaphyseal. It's also a fitting, but not diaphyseal sort of in growing growth in stem. So I mean, there's some considerations that I, I think maybe are subtly different than the Vancouver, but I, 
I think oh, for the most part, the Vancouver is a very appropriate one with the one exception that you're not walking on the humerus and the humerus heals a lot better than like the femur does. So I think we can uh, accept a lot more non-operative management if it's well fixed, if it's a metaphyseal fitting, if, you know, a lot of the other stuff fits and, and alignment's good. And like in this case, I think we can get away with a little bit more than hip and knee colleagues do, but that's, that's sort of how I, I view it. And in this case, I, I would agree. I mean, this fits, you have a well-fixed implant, you have a well-lined fracture, although it's displaced um, and obese. And I, I think the obesity, you know, implant or not definitely impacts humeral shaft healing. Um, and so, and then the bone quality is not the best as well. So there's a couple of factors that go against healing, but at, at the same time, like this, this, everything says that this should potentially be able to heal it. I would agree. And something that we haven't described for the audience is that both components are actually well fixed. Yeah. So the arthroplasty was done seven months prior. So the glenoid looks pristine. It was just cemented seven, seven months prior and the humeral component looks to be already ingrown in the proximal aspect. So the patient is placed in some type of immobilization that we cannot really tell very well um, in terms of the x-ray, but probably a combination of a Sarmiento brace uh, or a Belpo or an immobilizer. And that the alignment, I think, was very reasonable. So uh, this patient, I think, was treated very, very well initially by the treating of the surgeon, but for reasons that we can sometimes not predict, she did evolve into a non-union. Despite adequate treatment uh, at the beginning, I think, like we mentioned, there are factors that will still lead occasionally to these fractures not to heal. So now, Rob, the patient is coming after being immobilized on and off for eight months. So she's tired of this. As uh, you heard in the presentation, limited motion, some pain. So now the question is, what do we do with this fracture? What? How do you tackle this? And you still continue non up for longer than eight months, or eight months is, is enough? What do you think? Um, no, it's a great question. I, I, to me, I think non operative management at eight months is it's very much a shared decision with me and my patients. And so if they get to eight months and they're really not healing, it's way past where I would consider like I'd have to see a fair amount of healing at you know three, four months and pain going down and then their ability to tolerate. Uh, uh, therapy, right? Because if you non-op them for that very, very long time, you're essentially immobilizing two joints for a period of time, even if you don't mean it. And then they get very stiff and then you're bringing on other problems, right? And so I, I really feel strongly that, you know, this is sort of an anecdotal thing, right? It's not based on a ton of evidence. I'm sure there is good evidence on this, but if I'm not seeing good healing and maintenance of alignment within eight to 10 weeks, this is something I'm going to start to consider whether or not they're a candidate for doing something more aggressively. I will say with non-operative management, we do do that on someone, especially when someone who's overweight, I found that making sure that the Sarmiento brace has a shoulder cuff and gets up above the shoulder seems to help my patients. And, um, but that's what I would say. So at this point for me, eight months in, they come to see me for a second opinion. I'm going to present them with various uh, surgical interventions always allowing them if they choose to, to continue treating non-operatively, if that's what they want. Perfect. So, Bunny, when we have our teaching conferences at Mayo, as you know, we try to ask uh, residents to tell us every possible option of surgery and then choose one. So what options could we potentially consider here, you know, from fixing it to revision surgery, shortest term, longest term? What are the, all the options that you come to your mind as possibilities for this non-union? Well, just one comment that I'd make, uh, Joaquin, before I sort of address that specific needs, I, I see a lot of wound problems too with eight months in. 
So, you know, when I think about that, you also have to just address the soft tissue envelope. So I just want to bring that into the conversation because it's not just a bony deformity. Also, at this point in time, after eight months, you know, we don't talk about that. That's not in the case, but that's just something I would put out there for a resident and anyone to think about. That being said, I think, you know, the biggest thing that I think that differs this from a bone stock from a, you know, Vancouver for femurs is just bone stock is much more difficult in a well-fixed stem. So when we talk about options, we talk about prosthetic options, and then we talk about plating options for fractures. And I think I kind of categorize that into two sort of subcategories. You know, can you get a stem in longer, right? So can you go bypass that in some way to sort of create this bridge in terms of a reduction? And then can you add a plate to augment that fixation? And so to me, an ORAF of this with a well-fixed stem and not removing the stem is one option. A, a, a longer revision stem and, you know, assuming that the cuff's intact, are we talking about a total versus a reverse conversion? And then possibly do you need augmentation or just a well-fixed stem? And then second of all is the prosthesis with a well fix with a plate and screw fixation. So those are kind of the three things we talk about in terms of for me in this category when it's at the tip and you know you're you're kind of trying to create solutions for them. That's a great and I love your point about the skin because oftentimes these patients will have sometimes axillary irritation that can lead actually to fungal infection sometimes have a patient in apple pot for months and months and months. That is a great point, Vani. Uh, Eric, anything to add about options that Dr. Sebastian has not mentioned about how to manage this type of patient surgically? No, I mean, she, she covered it. I, I think the, the, if the stem is fixed, if you notice the cortices around the stem, not the best approximately. So, um, you know, trying to take out a well-fixed stem is going to be very challenging. Um, you know, the, the other thing, just in general, cortices are very small. So you, you worry about the quality of the bone. So if you are going to fix it, I think Considering augment, augmenting with with a strut is also a reasonable consideration. Um, you know the location of the fracture. You, you obviously are thinking radial nerve is is potentially involved, so that's that's going to be a challenge regardless of what you're doing. Um, so yeah, no, but I, I think uh, I, I think she covered very, very appropriately, and I also agree the skin issues, the armpit issues, because they haven't been lifting their arm up, um, and that's that's really that's really hard because. I, my experience is a lot of these patients have armpit issues and fungal infections or whatnot. And man, like, you know, then trying to win to pull the trigger, how do you treat that? But at the same time, like, um, uh, you know, allow them to, allow them probably treat that without um, delaying their surgery too much. You know, that's a, that's a unrecognized, very challenging problem. That's not easy, easily dealt with. Um, but nonetheless, yeah, no, I think, I think the eye, augmentation with a graph would be the only thing I'd add. This is the axillary X-ray that uh, is was obtained more on the on the chronic phase, and then you can see her attempted elevation, which is as expected limited. This is what she could do for active standard rotation and active internal rotation, and then we have a video here that shows the examination for those that want to go into the ortho bullets page and watch the video. So let's go through four questions that were answered by more than four hundred people, uh, and see if we agree. So um, we already said that at time zero, we would, the four of us, treat this patient um, non-operatively with immobilization. And uh, at this point, after eight months, I think the four of us said that we would uh, do operative treatment. Do you need any more images at all to decide or are brain x-rays enough? What do you think, Rob? 
You know, it's an interesting question, Joaquin. I mean, I think it often uh, a little bit depends on your approach. I mean, I think that you you could very easily go and just take care of this based on those uh, excellent x-rays that you have and, and say, you know, this is a fracture. It's a it's not involving the joint. I think the reason to get x-rays for me uh, for a sort of mid shaft uh, humerus fracture where it's periprosthetic or not is if I'm worried about um like this in a delayed union or malunion or something like that, or where is there any callus formation or anything like that? Um, the other part about this is that there's a stem in there. And although it looks very well fixed, I think sometimes a CT scan could give you some information. But I wouldn't fault anyone for just going forward and, and taking care of this without getting advanced imaging. Yeah, I would agree with that. So here you can see how this is at the time of the non-union, so eight months after the injury. 84% of the people that voted for this survey, they said, yes, it's time to do surgery. Interestingly, 10% still said, you know, I may still continue after eight months. And then they just really hate their patients. <laughs> <laughs> Thank God we're in the majority here. Yeah, 84% said, yes, it's time okay. for surgery. 10% said, ah, I might continue without surgery and see if I get lucky and by one year it's healed. And then a few said, I may need more images, maybe meaning a, a CT scan or, or something similar to this side. Now, going back to the non-operative treatment, the patient presents to us at eight months, but if you go back in time and you start at time zero, how often do you see these patients, Bunny? So if you have a patient that just came to you with the index fracture, do you see them every week, every month, every three months? When, when do you see them? Well, I tend to be a little bit um, more closely monitoring it early on because sometimes I'll see these well-aligned fractures sort of start to displace. So I think in that initial period might be in the first couple of months, I might see them maybe every two to three weeks. And then I think I space that out over time. So I think I, I tend to follow them closely, but obviously at, at eight months, I'm not seeing them every two, three weeks. So, you know, probably after the first two, three months, I tend to space that out and pull that out a little bit longer. And also I think it's just based on their functional and patient sort of pain expectations. I tend to, you know, we like to follow fractures, but ultimately we're following patients. You know, and if that expectation and they're sort of deteriorating, I think you have to have that close follow up with them for them to feel like you're involved in how miserable they are or how they're functioning and what their limitations are. So I, I really do kind of make it a patient sort of shared decision making on what we're doing. Already going to the question itself, you know, it's saying that if you choose non op initially, which we all did, when would you pull the trigger? Like, uh, would, you, would you offer this patient surgery at three months? Um, yeah. six months or even longer. What? When do you say it's time for surgery? Yeah, I mean, what Vanya said, said, I think is 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 great. Like, I I also want to, to sort of commit to non-operative treatment within like the first month. So I'll see them and I'll say maybe one one other time or two other times within that first month to see if we truly are going to be able to commit to the treatment. And once we commit to the treatment, meaning at one month, six weeks they are well-lined enough that we, we I think that they're going to heal. The patient wants to continue it. At that point, then I, I say we buy it and I'm not going to do anything until six months because I'm going to give it six months to try to heal. Um, but as Bonnie pointed out, I, I want to be, I want to see them more frequently early on so that way we can sort of make this decision that we don't need to fix this 
early. It doesn't start displacing, you know, by four weeks or six weeks. So once we've committed to a non-op though, I give it six months. Um, Vanya, how, how do you approach that? Do you, is that your, like, when do you sort of commit to non-operative treatments, seeing them every couple of weeks? Well, it's funny that you're saying that because, you know, I'm doing a patient tomorrow that, you know, it sometimes sort of decides itself, right? So the wound problem started to develop, right? So the skin starts to break down, especially these morbidly obese patients or bigger patients. And so it kind of sometimes can decide or push your hand one way or the other, you know, and this was at three months, right? So she started having skin breakdown. And so I really think it's a relevant conversation. And I'm glad we've talked about it a little bit because, you know, then there's all this fear of also you do a huge construct revision surgery and what if it gets infected, right? So, you know, I think it's a really difficult thing, but I, I think that that timing somewhere between three to six months, but I would say in Palm Beach, maybe Eric, instead of Atlanta, they're, they're much less willing to wait six months for me. And by three, four months, they're done with the brace. So sometimes I think I'm probably pushed a little bit. I will say the one thing Joaquin, that you kind of have, we've touched on, but maybe I would say is, I think these sort of whatever you want to say, Vancouver, these tip of the um, stem ones have a harder time to heal. I do see that sometimes there's just not enough um, bone to bone contact. There's not enough healing. And I've found these fractures that spiral at that tip sometimes have a higher rate from in my hands with non-union. Yeah, I think in the study that our mentor, Dr. Cofield, published years ago, it was amazing that many fractures did end up healing like at six, seven, eight months, you know. When we ask this question uh, to the audience, as you can see here, it's actually a split. Like I would say that um, at the beginning, people said, well, I may not have chosen non-operative treatment, but for the ones that did, about half of them are going to pull the trigger at three months and half at six months, and very few will wait nine months. So um, I think if there is gross motion at the fracture side by six to eight weeks, you can almost predict that's not going to heal. If there is like really severe motion, if, if there is some stickiness at six to eight weeks, then you can maybe wait. But for me, it's the same. It's that window between three and six months. But for me, by six months, I for sure, I'm going to be chosen uh, to recommend the patient uh, surgery. Well, Joaquin, can I ask that... like what? Oh, go ahead. Yeah. I was say, Joaquin, given that patients are, are are sometimes traveling in to see you, when are you? Uh, so you, let's say it's it is sticky six weeks. Then are you making them come back at six months? Or you making them come back at three months? Like how, how are you managing that person from lacrosse or from? Yeah, uh, if the patient uh, seems to be in the route to healing, if that's the case, then I may see them through telemedicine with local X-rays. You know, and that's been helpful for me. Um, and if they are tending not to heal, I may say them face-to-face -face with a date for surgery almost already pre-booked. So I, I try to make that decision uh, that way. Do you have a question or a comment, Bunny? Yeah, well, I was just going to ask the group too, you know, what about, so there's gross motion, which I think is kind of an obvious one, but what about if you just don't see radiographic healing, right? You're not seeing a lot, you know, Rob was talking about this. At three months, if you really see nothing sort of bridging, no sort of formation, does that change how you guys would approach it? Yeah, for me, I would probably start to discuss surgery at that point at three months. By the time logistically you get organized, I typically end up fixing them at six months minimum because of the logistics. But I think at three months, if you see that it's clear and atrophic non-union where there is no callus formation at all, then I think I would probably pull the trigger. Same with me. I, I think you've got to see some evidence of healing at three months, you know, and I am very similar to all you guys, you know, and that's the, the great thing about this panel is that you see them frequently in that first month, but if at three months you're not seeing anything, 
atrophic non-union to me is not going to heal at six months. It's not, there's no evidence at, at three months, especially with how we're treating it, right? Because we're treating it um, in a way that you should see some callus formation, right? If we go back to our AO principles on that. So, but I also think that those are the most difficult patients to get to heal with an operation, right? So if they're in atrophic non-union, then we're also going to run into trouble and you, and we'll probably get to this, Joaquin, about having to add some biology to that because it's those x-rays at three months should show something at this area, right? If you have normal healing capacity. So my concern with those patients at three months, I want to take to surgery. They're also going to have problems with surgery. Yep. That's exactly right. So now the next question is about you are going to do surgery. Now what to do? And something I learned from the ortho bullet screw is that when you frame these questions, you have to put every single option with the ones that you would. <laughs> we pick three. They have so, seven. So <laughs> Fixation alone, probably, I don't think we would do, right? Like an X-fix for this fracture, probably not. But we still have to put it as an option. So for me, it would be either you do RIF or you change the implant only or you change the implant and add RIF. So now let's, uh, I know that those are the options, but what would you do? So Rob, what would you do of all those options? Would you would you change the stem or not? That That's, I think, the main question. I would not. I mean, I, so for me, I am not going to change the stem, Joaquin. I, I think this is the big, you know, this is a plug for all the uh, newer implants out there that are shorter and, and not going down to diaphysis and are more very proximal. I, I think that this, this, as Eric said earlier, if you try to take this stem out, it's well fixed. You very well could be looking at putting a tumor prosthesis in them because you're going to tear the whole thing out. Um, it's just really hard. And you also don't have any, like, it's not, it's not fixed distally, right? So it's hard, harder to get that stem out. You can't just sort of crack things to get things out. So number one for me, I'm going to leave that stem. I'd rather have a well-fixed implant that's healed that then I have to address the shoulder in the future than trying to do both things at once, right? Sort of like the DVD and VCR thing, right? Like nothing is good with both things, right? So I'm going to leave that stem, even if the shoulder wasn't great before she fell, and I'm going to try to get the bone to heal because I can do a better job of revising that when the whole humerus is healed than I can in this situation where it's moving around. So for me, I'm open reduction internal fixation with this uh, likely anterior approach, right? Just in case I get in there and I have to do something more proximally. I like to have the extensile approach for that. Um, and I'm plus or minus on, uh, on biology. But if it's a not true non-union, I'm going to be adding biology to that. Yeah, I think what you said is important. You know, you cannot minimize the amount of morbidity that can be created by someone trying to remove a well-fixed stem. Yeah. You have to do something to the suescapularis again, which as of now, it has healed after her primary. You have to remove that uh, implant, which is very large and very long. So by the time you're done, you will have a shell of bone that may actually fracture in your hand. So I love your comment about you may end up with a tumor prosthesis because I think that very likely could, could happen. Uh, but now, Eric, I'm going to put you in the spot. If you if you were going to remove the stem, how would you do it technically? Like if you said, you know what, I am going to commit, <laughs> I'm just doing it. Like what would you do? Yeah, gosh, so I mean, you got that one. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a that, that's that's a tough one because the uh, I agree. I mean, that's a big stem, not great courses. Um, Your chance of of having a, a very difficult reconstruction afterwards is 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 high. And, and and committing to that is 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 also high. And something I would I would make sure patients understand either tumor prosthesis or APC as as a backup, or you even doing a, like a spacer then to an APC later if if you really do blow it apart. But nonetheless, 
Um, to remove it, the way I do it, I do um, pencil tip burrs around where the metaphysis is to try to get the as much as I can, as much of the ingrowth as I can to separate it. Um, then I do flexible um, uh, flexible acetomes to try to sort of get anything I couldn't get with the pencil tip burr. Um, and then that you can see the calcar has a little bit of resorption. And so in the calcar, you can take a metal cutting burr, create a little lip, and then hopefully you've taken out enough of the, uh, of the metaphyseal ingrowth part and, and the diaphyseal part hasn't maybe ingrown as much. So then you can try to mallet out. The one consideration in this is since you have the stem on the other side, you can, if there's if it's not getting out from the top, you can potentially do the same thing on the bottom to try to help to get it out. But once again, I would not do that in this situation. I'm strongly <laughs> encouraging them not to do that in this situation because it's going to very quickly turn into a a uh, salvage situation that is that no matter what you do, the outcomes are not going to be that great. And just really quickly as a follow-up, Eric, how often these days do you find yourself that you have to do a corticotomy or a window for this time? Not for a small stem like Rob described, for a classic standard length well fixed stem, is that common in your practice or can you most of the times take it out from the top? Honestly, fortunately, because most of the ones nowadays are metaphyseal and growth, I'm not doing that very often. I've had to do maybe one or two in the last like couple of years. And I think it's because most of it's metaphyseal fitting. So we are I am able to get by with 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 uh, approaching from the most part up top. There has there are a couple diaphyseal um, fitting or, or diaphyseal and growth stems on the market that um, that uh, when you see that, you know, right off the bat, you have to do a, a, a more distal window and, and that's going to be just a very difficult day in the R. Um, that being said, honestly, no, I, I, for the most part, I, I feel like uh, most of the modern implants were able to, uh, were able to get out through that approach. It's funny because when I saw this patient as a workup, as a first patient, you know, the person that was in training with me said, oh, we're revising this to a long stem reverse tomorrow, right? So for many trainees, yeah. the set of an orthoplasty has failed is revised to reverse. And I well, can I make a comment, Joaquin? Because yeah. like in, in the, I feel like they also see our hip and knee colleagues. And I think it's a very different revision sort of situation in those in those colleagues compared to ours. And I remember my first year out, I did something like this and it fell apart and, and the patient ended up with an HRP and I was devastated because I thought like, I could do it. You know, this is, but these stems, it's like a battle between you and the, and the bone and you usually lose. Well, this is interestingly, uh, you know, what uh, the audience says. So most people, almost 80% said, like we said tonight, retain the prosthesis, but there were some people, 12% that said, I would actually change the stem. I think people are thinking about bypassing the non-union with something metallic on the inside, like an IM nail. And then after that, adding some type of uh, fixation. And then Bunny, let's say that you're going to plate it. You know, it's interesting, but this case was posted in LinkedIn. I don't know what the poll is on orthobullets. 50% of the surgeons said, I would go posterior. And 50% said I will go anterior. So there were things that said, I like that very long plate that has a lateral extension from the back. I do it for all my humeral shaft fractures. That's what I'm going to do. Another said, no, I'm used to the total approach. I'm going from the front, yes or yes. So, Bunny, break the tie. Anterolateral plate or posterior plate? What would you do? Well, well, I personally probably would do an anterior lateral plate, mostly because I think I can address the approach and the prosthesis to get proximal fixation a little better. 
And I think when you're trying to do posterior to get up high to really get fixation, to be here, I think there's two things that at least I would say in my mind that we need to talk about is it's not an easy plate fixation. So, you know, we're all talking about this, but let's be clear, there's not much cortices proximally. You've got to try to get screws, maybe some K wires, but all of that stuff bone absorbs around metal. So it's not like this is some slam dunk and some of the actually plates out there don't even have short enough screws. So, I mean, I think we have to talk about that. I actually have been recently, and I've probably done it, a pretty a handful, almost a dozen of cases using a periprosthetic type plate. So these call these utility plates where you have multiple screw options. But I think when you're coming posteriorly to get up high past that deltoid can be very difficult. So in my hands, but I do think, you know, we have to remind ourselves the idea of sort of posterior approach to be able to address the radial nerve, which is always a fear in that type of fracture where it is, is something that if you're staring at it, you have a little bit more, um, certainty right of sort of knowing where it is addressing it and not catching it on a cerclage wire or some other point of an anterolateral approach so rob why do you think that so many people on linkedin said i will go posterior because i will go anterior myself like vanny what do you think that trauma training or or yeah. what do you i think people are more comfortable with this kind of thing doing a sort of dual plating i also think it's what vanny was saying is that i think people like to visualize the nerve um, when they're around here, especially if it's a non-union and you know, there's going to be some scar tissue in there at some point, even if it's atrophic. My counter to that is, is uh, especially Joaquin for someone like you, who's such an expert at elbows, right? Is that I, I think if you're concerned about the nerve, like, I don't think that's a reason to go posterior. I don't think it's an extensile approach for this. As Vani says, I think the bone stock that you're looking for, you're going to need to get all the way up into that metaphysis to probably get fixation or at least be prepared to do that depending on how it looks. And so if you go down to the BR, find the radial nerve and trace it up, you can really be very confident that that radial nerve is out of your way. You stay you stay right on bone with any kind of cerclage or anything else you do. So to answer your question, that was a long way. Number one, I think trauma trained people are very comfortable with it. You can put them in the lateral position. And I love doing humerus fractures in the lateral position because it reduces. You don't have to do anything. It just sits there. You can almost do it by yourself without a resident, right? And, and then you can visualize the radial nerve directly. So I think those are the big reasons. You do this in the beach chair, or you do it in a flat jackson. Um, there, there's a lot more moving around. You got to be able to manip manipulate it. So there's no doubt going posterior, you put them lateral, it reduces itself. You slap a couple plates on watch the rail nerve. I just think for this, because the um, the stem is in there, you're going to run into trouble with fixation proximally. Can I, can I pose what? a- No residence? What are you talking can about? <laughs> can, I, can I pose a question? <laughs> Jeff, I would also would go anterior, uh, um, or, uh, anterior or anterior because uh, to get more proximal, I think it's really difficult to get that proximal, as Bonnie said, with the delta there. When you go posterior, but would it change your opinions at all, or would it change your approach at all if the patient had a radial nerve palsy? No. I mean, they 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 had a radial palsy after this fall. Um, they it hasn't totally recovered. Would you then go posterior, and so that way you could yeah. be sure it's not entrapped in there, or would you still go anterior lateral? What do you think, bro? I would still go anterior lateral. Um, I think you can go find the nerve and you can trace it up. Uh, you know, that's maybe from my tumor in my upper extremity colleagues where you know if there's a tumor in there right they go down and find the nerve and they trace it up i think it's just as easy to find anteriorly and then trace it up um so i i still would go anterior anterior lateral excuse me 
Well, this was the uh, the poll that uh, OrthoBullets uh, showed. So about 70% will go anterolateral, like I think the four of us mentioned. And then about one third almost will go posterior. So I think this is fifty. but many people will say, you know what? I That part of the approach is not done. So it's verging completely. Like Rob said, I can find the uh, nerve very easily. So I think I can get a uh, great fixation. And then this is what I ended up doing. Um, uh, I tried to use a lateral pre-contoured plate, trying to use those proximal screw holes that are more spread out, like Manny mentioned about the utility plates, to get fixation proximally with unicortal screws. I still used one cell class proximally because I couldn't get great fixation. And then I think someone mentioned using a strut medially, which I think gives you some biology uh, and also some opportunity for better screw fixation. You can see how the screws actually go into the strut as well, and that gives you more cortices to, to fix the fracture. The one Can I ask, Joaquin, how yeah. do you decide, even at the panel, how do you decide how many cerclages is enough? Because one of the residents asked me that, and I think it was a really you know intelligent question, right? And, and how do you balance unicortical screw versus cerclage? Yeah, I mean, I'm interested in what Eric and Rob had to say. I typically commit to the uh, class when I realize that my screw fixation is just not enough. So I like screws. Sometimes you can skive screws. It's just that this system was so thick that I couldn't very well. And I typically add one or two. Uh, this is a double looky wire, so it gives you a lot of fixation. I place it through the plate. And one thing I have learned is that if you're going to place a circlage, uh, place it before you have the plate completely sunk into the bone because you don't have a space to pass the wire. How about you, Eric? Do you have a magic number for surclass if you're gonna get fixation approximately one, two, three? No, I don't, but I do try to get as many sort of unicortical or bypassing this, the uh, different sides of the of the uh, shaft as, as much, especially proximally, you can get some more kind of sneaking around the, uh, the humerus. And so I try to do at least a couple of those. And then I always actually do a suture surclage. So I actually do a little knee snot and suture surclage um, proximally to help hold the reduction initially, and then also to sort of augment the fixation. And I usually will do two to three of those, regardless how many uh, unicorical screws. For me, unicorical slash like trying to stick around the stem is is probably the most important. Um, obviously, uh, the, I, I, and I just want to come to. I think the struts are a very smart idea, and these you could see how osteoporotic this patient was. Um, and it was atrophic non-union. I think the more you can do to never have to go back on this case, the better. And so I think this is great. And the nice thing is, let's say that the, for some reason the anatomic fails, you get that fracture heal with that biology. You can do something short above it and and have a, have a, have a nice nice options that doesn't create something super complex. Yeah, and uh, my mentor Dr. Morio was used to say there are things that work great in your head, and they don't work in the operating room. So my goal was to get the top of the plate by the greater tuberosity. But because of the shape of her bone, it just didn't fit. And right. I don't know if it was a mistake on my part, because in my mind, preoperative is like, oh yeah, I'm gonna get the proximal humerus locking plate, I'm gonna hug the tuberosity, place my locking screws up there, I'm gonna be great. And then when I have my reduction, I will have to massively modify the contour of the plate yeah. to fit. So maybe a small intra-op mistake that I made that, you know, luckily the fracture is still healed, but something to, to note in the x-ray that I think the place should be higher to look more beautiful. Can I ask, what would you guys do if it was acute? Let's just say we did this early on, right? Would Rob, would you do an, a, a graft always or not? What's your thoughts on that? 
No, I, I don't. Um, I think I, one, Joaquin, I think this looks awesome. And I agree with you that if you, you could have the, the prettiness, right. But this is, this is phenomenal. This is a really tough injury. You did a great job, but I, I love your prettiness comment. I do. I do love the plates to look pretty, but for me, um, I think what, uh, Joaquin, what you did here with the struck graph, uh, is phenomenal. It's, it, and, uh, I would always, when I have these, I, if I give them acutely, Vani, I will just put a plate on, I'll do plate osteosynthesis and I'll consider actually shortening them sometimes depending if it's just a, if it's a, it's an early non-union to just get better compression. This is much different though. This is an oblique fracture with a butterfly, it's, uh, you know, and so this is a hard one to shorten, but that's another option to, to enhance your biology at times. Well, thank you very much for your expertise tonight. I hope that the audience will enjoy listening to both the uh, recording of the screen and also the podcast. And again, for everyone listening or connecting later, you're all welcome to this course we have in Las Vegas, November 2nd to 4th this year at the Venetian. And you can learn even more from Dr. Gillespie, Wagner, and Sebastian if you come over. Thank you and have a great night.